Welcome everyone to episode 117, Biology and Beer. I'm Dr. Kiki and I'm here with Dr. Dalen James and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies. Thanks so much for tuning in. How's it going over there, Dalen? I'll tell you what I'm not doing and I'm not drinking a beer, which is a mistake. I don't know why I'm not. This is like my chance for research. I could be drinking for research right now. You could be. You could be tasting those craft beers. But I'm not. Comparing their flavors, but you're not. Maybe there is someone out there drinking a beer as they're listening to this episode. Well, they better be. <laughs> Getting into the theme. Live. We're going to get serious. In fact, I'm going to try and stay lucid. That's why I'm not drinking. I'm going to stay lucid and report on science and talk about beer with Pete Lango, my boy. And you guys can all, you know, throw a couple back for me. There should be time. That's great. Okay. So everyone out there, we are going to get down to business. You can sit back, relax, and enjoy. But while you're doing that, make sure you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, but you'll also find all of our past episodes and other great resources. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And of course, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher so that new episodes will automatically download to your phone. And like Dalen mentioned, we have a great show today. In addition to our roundup of the latest science and stem cell news, going to be talking with Pete Lengel from the Kings County Brewers Collective and he about his career path from stem cells to brewing beer. You ready, Dalen? Yes, almost ready. Before we get to that, I'm going to let you guys know, big news, stem cell is hiring. Stem cell technology is a world leader in developing tools and services for scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, Stem Cell is a team of scientists helping scientists. And they're looking for creative, driven, science-minded people to join their international team. Explore more than 70 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, quality, and science communication, all at jobs.stemcell.com dot com that's jobs dot stem cell dot com go get yourself a jobby job all right kiki <laughs> let's round it up all right that's my jobby job right now is rounding this all up for everyone science time my first story for today artificial intelligence we know it may be the thing that uh, destroys humanity in the future no but researchers trying to create good artificial intelligence have been using the human brain as inspiration. And new research has uh, discovered that the best kind of artificial intelligence may use the same kind of wiring as the human brain. Researchers tested an idea that first kind of percolated out of a discovery that won the 2014 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. Researchers in Norway, they discovered that rats track their location with the help of grid cells. These grid cells project an imaginary, well, we can imagine it. It's not really this thing that gets projected, but it's kind of there. It's kind of there in our brains, in the rat brain, a hexagonal lattice onto an animal's surroundings. The grid cells, the idea popped up then that the grid cells may help these mammals and maybe also humans, because these cells have also been found in human brains, give mammals an internal coordinate system and to be able to plan direct paths between points. So some researchers with Google DeepMind and a neuroscientist named Caswell Berry at University College London, they created an artificial intelligence algorithm system that contained virtual nerve cells and their activity resembled the activity of grid cells found in mammalian brains. They trained the AI to navigate virtual mazes by giving the system reward signals whenever it reached its destination. 
eventually the AI did better than a human expert player, or I guess a human expert maze solver, and was also savvier than other artificial neural networks in maneuvering through labyrinths larger than those traversed during its training. When a door opened to provide a shortcut through a maze, the AI took that shortcut, taking the more direct route. So the AI was understanding a direct path as opposed to a more decision-making process of, do I turn left? Do I turn right? It wasn't so much rules as opposed to a direct route or navigational planning. Contrasting to that, AI systems without these grid cells in their system ignored the shortcut and took the long way around. And so the findings in this AI system support the idea, you know, in this virtual world that grid cells in the real world are more important for this direct navigation, helping animals devise the most straightforward directions to destinations. But this is an AI. It's not the actual human brain or even the actual rat brain. And the system was meant to learn on its own. They don't really understand. The researchers don't know why the system made specific decisions. They just know that the AI did. This research appears in Nature and in the May 9th issue. Pretty interesting. AI navigating direct paths and telling us more about the mammalian brain, maybe. I'm fucked out about AI. Bad. Scary. Do you hear just bad. all these people? They <laughs> quit Google, by the way. This is just in the news today. They all quit Google because of it. Uh, that was about drones. But it's AI, too. It's all Skynet. It's something about the computers taking over the universe. I'm repulsed by it. Yeah, I think it's, what is it? It's the drones, but it's Google having a contract with the Pentagon to create. Yeah, yeah, that's a, it's a totally different thing. My, my mistake there. No, but it will be, these will be not necessarily human flown drones. They will eventually, the idea is just to have AI mm. controlling all these things eventually. Humans may be monitoring, but the AI would be in control. And there are big questions that we still need to answer as to what abilities we want AI to have and how far we want its intelligence to go. I don't know. Skynet, it's coming, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, we already have AI that's very helpful. I mean, you've got Siri and Alexa and all these algorithms that help us in our daily lives that we don't really notice and they make things more convenient. But the until, is... until they get upset. <laughs> until they get upset. Then exactly. We're a hose. We're not going to be able to play any music. We're going to one day AI we're not will say be able no. to do anything. AI is <laughs> just going to say, nah, I'm, I'm going to get a coffee. Well, maybe one day because of a new discovery by structural biologist Kelly Nguyen and her colleagues, maybe someday we will be able to best aging, fight cancer, and understand genetic diseases caused by faulty versions of telomerase. The enzyme that controls the length of the ends of our chromosomes, the telomeres, right? Ends of our chromosomes are capped with what are called telomeres, and there is an enzyme called telomerase that maintains it. But when telomerase goes wrong, aging goes wrong, all sorts of diseases happen. And one of the issues that has hounded us is not really having a good idea of its structure. Now, Thanks to Nguyen and her team's work, they published online April 25th in Nature, that they have used cryoelectron microscopy to elucidate the structure of this enzyme. And so being able to understand what it looks like, how it fits together, you know, like puzzle pieces tie in with end of the telomere, this could give this new view, quote unquote, unprecedented view help us understand how parts of the telomerase are organized and be able to make actual progress against diseases related to it. I'm always curious about all these diseases because I remember telomerase was like, we went crazy for it back in the day with the Nobel because like it was thought to be kind of a silver bullet to address aging. Is that still the idea that if we can increase telomeres that we could solve disease or is it just one part of the picture. It's one part of the picture. I mean, there's still a lot of evidence that does show that the shortening telomeres 
do lead to cellular aging more quickly. So mm-hmm. as the telomeres shorten, your cells, the chromosomes themselves are less protected. And so changes take place that lead to things like mutations that cause cancer or that lead to apoptotic processes where the cells end up aging and dying out. Yeah, telomeres are important. So there is a causal relationship there. It's not just correlation, I see. Okay, well, another piece of the puzzle. Now we can see it. Once you can see it, you can manipulate it, right? Exactly. And so I think it's that manipulation that may enable greater experimentation and understanding. More steps forward. Being able to look at things, it helps. So this story, I don't think about this all the time, but I'm glad there are people in the world who are worried about bioterrorism and how to protect us from it. And the FDA is now looking at a treatment for smallpox. When was the last time you thought about smallpox, Dalen? Uh, Not. Since I've been alive, to be honest. No. So most people in the United States and the developed world do not worry about smallpox. Vaccination against smallpox hasn't really happened since the 70s when it was eradicated. However, because of bioterrorism concerns, governmental agencies are concerned that like anthrax and other biological weapons that have popped up here and there, that smallpox could be used and would have a devastating effect if it were because nobody is vaccinated against it anymore because it's not something we worry about, right? We don't think about it. And so if people got it, a lot of people would be injured and killed. About 30% of people infected die from smallpox. And those that do survive are left with disfiguring pox scars. But there is a drug that the U.S. FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is looking at for treatment. They have unanimously recommended approval of ticoviramat or TPOX, T-P-O-X-X, and this was on May 1st. The decision as to whether to actually approve it for treatment will be made later this summer. But it's interesting to know that these diseases that we think of as gone or that we don't have to think of as at all are actually up for consideration as bioterrorist weapons and that uh, we, we still need to have potential treatments and vaccines available as we move into the future. That's a bummer, Kiki. I don't like these kind of stories. Because, <laughs> you know, if, if the FDA is doing it, I feel like, what do they know? They must know something about P- maybe P- And now with CRISPR, I read this whole story about how there's all now these companies that make any sequence. You can make any oligo. So you could essentially, given the knowledge and the sequence, you can make whatever you want, especially viral type vectors, which are so simple in their DNA content. It makes me think FDA must know something. I'm never leaving my house again. Not taking the subway home, that's for sure. That's right. Well, you know, you don't. I, I just saw a story recently also that some scientists got a, a mail order biology kit, bacterial biology kit, and they were, maybe it wasn't bacteria, but they got some kind of DIY biology kit in the mail and were able to create viruses in their garages, in their kitchens that could potentially infect people if they were released into the public. So there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff going on that needs to, people need to be aware of it and there need to be conversations about how we use the, how we use these technologies moving forward. But in some good news, let's not be scared anymore. You know, one of the things we look at a lot, we talk about a lot is climate change. It's on the mind of so many people is We see increasing storm intensities and summer and winters shift more rapidly. We have strange weather that occurs. And another thing that happens is we hear more and more about reptiles having sex determination problems because reptiles, their sex is determined very much by the temperature of their environment. One particular species that we've been concerned about for ages are turtles turtles especially, but which are endangered. But we've been wondering, okay, turtles, when are you going to be female? When are you going to be male? How does temperature affect that? We do know that increasing temperatures, warmer nest temperatures, turn baby turtles into females. And then you end up with too many females in a population, not enough males, and populations end up declining as a result. However, we haven't been able to figure out what the mechanism is 
that causes this temperature response. But published in the May 11th issue of Science, researchers from Duke University of Medicine have shown that there is a gene, one called KDM6B, that behaves differently in developing male and female turtles. And then this new study, researchers were able to actually figure out that this gene affected sex determination based on temperature. And it affected downstream genes in response as well. KDM6B also controls a gene called DMRT1, which has also already been shown to direct male development. But while KDM6B does behave differently as temperatures go up, it doesn't behave the same in all tissues. And so they don't think that it is a direct sensor of temperature, but instead gets its messages from upstream somewhere, that there is probably another gene that they still haven't determined, that there's some other mechanism that reacts directly to the change in temperature and then directs the downstream responses. But this is another step in the right direction. As researcher from Boca Raton says, this is really exciting finding, but we need to remember that everything in a lab is controlled and these Wild turtle eggs are subject to fluctuations in temperature and moisture as they incubate, which means the signals that temperature-sensitive genes are receiving are going to be a bit more muddled, maybe more confused than what we might see in the laboratory. But understanding how it works means that maybe we can, I don't know, shift the process down the line or at least understand how to affect it in the future. I mean, I don't know. I'm thinking you've got these reptiles in the wild and they're all turning into females because it's getting hotter. And what are you supposed to do? Release some kind of virus that puts a gene in, that changes the genes so that they don't turn into females? I mean, how is this going to be implemented? You got to name that movie. Life finds a way. You know what that quote is from? Jurassic Park. (laughs) That's the classic Jeff Goldblum. He's talking about how the dinosaurs, they were all bred to be female and then some, some. I mean, that's, I I don't know. You're right. How do you deliver that? But, you know, it's interesting mechanistically. Would that we all could change so easily between male and female, Kiki. What a world. Would that it were. (laughs) Would that it were. If you think, you know, male and female, some of them, people consider them as, like a different species, right? And uh, I got my first story here queued up. Nice little segue. It's a bit of clickbait. It's been widely reported in the media, and I think a terrible way, about a similar idea. Subspecies of human primate, Homo, Neanderthal, and Homo sapiens, right? So like the idea here, I think it's, it's why it's terrible clickbait. And you see headlines like, scientists making Neanderthal brains our brain organoids. And that's generally the message that's come across. And it's, it's close to the truth what this group's doing here. It's Svante Pabo, who's the director of genetics department at Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, which is in Leipzig, Germany, in case you were wondering. He is taking his group, they're taking this neural organoid idea and incorporating Neanderthal DNA, but it's not like they're taking Neanderthal stem cells or anything like that. In reality, what they're doing is they're taking human pluripotent stem cells and they're doing a modification using CRISPR to introduce modifications to just three specific genes that are different because some of the Neanderthal genome has been sequenced. These three genes are different in a Neanderthal genome. And they're thought to relate or known to have a role in neural development, neurogenesis. So what the group's doing is that they're going to take human cells and they're going to specifically modify these three genes and then look at organoids, neural organoids that are made from those pluripotent stem cells. So it's not quite like a brain organoid, neural, neural, you know, we're going to have these Neanderthals brains in a dish and gain insight to their stunted thought processes, because that's science fiction, frankly. But I think what it could do, which is interesting, is it may give us a bit of insight into how, you know, different brain regions or different subpopulations of neural cells within the developing brain may have 
proliferated or, you know, died or, you know, pattern formed differently and led to some of the neural anatomy or anatomical differences that are, have been noted between human and Neanderthal brain. And then if you wanted to extend that, you might get, you know, to how those, that neuroanatomical elements may relate to behavior or thought processes, which I quite frankly think is a stretch. And then, you know, there's some quotes in the paper, which I think are just crazy, where they're saying how the team, quote, will also examine whether Neanderthal genes common in the DNA of people with European and Asian ancestry could influence brain development. They would like to find out if they can regrow the Neanderthal brain and afterward resurrect the functionality of those Neanderthal genes. That's quite honestly ludicrous. I think it's a, it's a play for publicity is, is what the headlines are doing. But I, there is some merit to the idea of, of focusing on kind of the evolutionary element or evolutionary role of these specific genes in neurogenesis. And I think they may be able to deconstruct the system and answer some questions, though. We'll have to see how that plays out. Yeah. Neanderthal brain in a dish, Kiki. Yeah. I think the sensational aspect of this is is definitely on the forefront here. Svante Pabo, I mean, he's one of the big Neanderthal researchers and he's do, he's done a lot of great work to date. And this does sound like a really interesting way to go. But I don't know. It's kind of grow a Neanderthal brain, blah, blah, blah. No, I mean, mini organoids, they're, even though they're three dimensional, they're still tiny and it's nowhere near a real brain. You're not even getting different brain regions. You get groups of cells and you can see how the connectivity works. It's being oversold at this point, for well, sure. Well, this thing was <laughs> flying, flying oh. on Reddit. You can imagine oh how people were uploading this thing. It's so crazy how you can manipulate the hearts and minds. Yeah. Oh, my. Well, here's a bit of a story that's a lot more solid, I would say, on the back end. In solid findings, it's... Also widely reported, though, because I think it's really relevant, although maybe people have jumped on it as a kind of extension of caloric restriction. They're reading the headline thinking, I'm going to live forever. And, you know, it fits in with the caloric restriction idea, but it's very focused. Let me elaborate. So this is a story that was in Cell Stem Cell out of Sabatini's group at MIT showing that fasting, a 24-hour fast, this is in mice, it boosts the intestinal crypt stem cells, Okay. So background, as you get older, intestinal stem cells begin to lose their ability to regenerate. These are the stem cells that comprise all your intestinal lining. So the decline can make it difficult to recover from like GI infections or other conditions that may affect the intestine or diseases. And this age-related loss of the stem cell function, it's been shown out can be reversed in mice by a 24-hour fast. And that 24-hour fast dramatically improves the stem cell's ability to regenerate, not only in young mice, but also in old mice. So for decades, there's been this link between low caloric intake and enhanced stem cell longevity in humans, other organisms, pretty much across the whole board. In animals, caloric restriction seems to increase yeah. longevity. And so this group here, what they're interested in is exploring how this caloric restriction or fasting exerts its effect at the molecular level. And they looked at the intestine specifically because it's an organ that's very rich in stem cell function and turnover. So they looked at caloric restriction and saw that dramatically after just 24-hour fast, the intestinal stem cells, if they were explanted into a culture dish, they formed these mini intestines with much higher efficiency doubled the efficiency in fasting mice relative to the other mice. And following up on these studies, they did like some sequencing and RNA-seq, uh, looking at the fasting mice versus normal control mice. And they showed that the fasting, what it did to gene expression is it caused the cells to switch from their usual metabolism of carbohydrates to metabolizing fatty acids. And this switch ultimately involve the activation of these specific transcription factors called PPARs, and that turns on a whole constellation of genes that are involved in metabolizing fatty acids, okay? So what's amazing, though, is that what the researchers found that if they could just uh, use a small molecule that activates the same metabolic switch, they could recapitulate 
the benefit to the intestinal stem cell function. So they could hack it with a small molecule, which, you know, that's the juice right there. This is something that looks very amenable to pharmacology. And the findings suggest that drug treatment could stimulate regeneration without requiring patients to fast, which I don't know about you, Kiki, but I don't like fasting. No. And if you think about it, like if a mouse is fasting for 24 hours, what does that mean? We have to fast for a week? (laughs) <laughs> like no thanks <laughs> no yes it's like dog ears i think that the math is that you have to fast for a month actually right. <laughs> and so there you you run the risk of dying unfortunately yeah, unfortunately <laughs> let's find a, a compound let's let's get the drug yeah. solution to this <laughs> yeah, I think when in the early phase one trials, when all the recruits died, that's when they said, you know what, <laughs> we're going to have to go with them. Anyway, so, yeah, it's it's cool. I and mean, it could benefit a lot of people. This is cancer patients with chemo, a lot of GI symptoms there. Also, intestinal infections, GI disorders, anything that bangs out your intestine, get on this fatty acid oxidase thing and boom, you can eat all the crummy food you want. <laughs> Woohoo! Yay! All right. So the next one, this is also nuts. We got a great, great lineup today. I mean, we started a little soft on the Neanderthal brains, but we're getting, we're heating up. This is so cool. So, you know, just by way of background, the progression of like stem cell potency, pluripotency, totipotency, it was like this. First, you took the stem cells, you could make chimeras. They could make a whole organ in a mouse or whatever organ and organism. And then you could do tetraploid complementation where one stem cell could make the whole organism. That was a big deal. And then more recently, they've been able to make sperm and eggs from stem cells. And that would make an animal, a mouse in this case, that was reproductive and could make babies of its own. And now we're going right from stem cell to embryo, not by way of gamete, not by way of, you know, tetraploid complementation or chimerism. This is making a blastocyst-like structure generated solely from stem cells, okay? This is from Nicholas Rivron, and this is just in nature. They took mouse embryonic stem cells, okay, and they combined them with mouse trophobast stem cells, and they, you know, I'm not going to belabor the the details because the paper is there for you, but essentially put them together with like a cocktail of small molecules and, you know, recombinant cytokines. And that triggered these two stem cell populations to self-organize into what looked like a blastocyst. They call it a blastoid, I think, and our blastoid like thing. I don't know, but it looks just like a blastocyst. Look at the paper, guys. It's pretty amazing. And these structures actually were able to implant and like recruit vasculature and kind of form these pseudo placentas. But a high percentage of these embryos were able to plant in the lining of the mouse. And although they didn't form like organized embryos, they showed some of the fundamental processes of implantation and decidualization. So the idea here is that it can be a really rich system for mechanistic understanding of how these two cell types organize into to form an embryo and then how implantation happens. And also this could be a nice platform for like pharmaceutical screening. You know, if you want to see if any kind of drug has an adverse effect on reproductive processes specifically related to the embryo or implantation with embryos being such a precious resource in, in the case of humans in particular, if you could recapitulate this process and human embryonic stem cells and human trophoblex stem cells, you may have a, a really useful system for tox screening or other types of modeling. So it's a pretty amazing discovery. I never thought I'd see the day, Kiki. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that no one is ever going to be able to take these types of blastoid-like things and actually make a mouse. But I'll be the first to tell you that that is a pretty flimsy limb that I'm out on because this is pretty much proving the principle and I can't be long before people are moving into getting organized embryos, but I still don't think it's going to work. I just have a fundamental resistance to the idea. It seems impossible. But why? I mean, as a reproductive biologist yourself and, you know, working in stem cells and IVF for so long, I mean, you know 
that reproduction across the animal kingdom is so diverse and there are so many ways it happens. Parthenogenesis happens in so many species where, you know, a female can have more, have offspring without ever having a male partner. You know, there are examples of this happening all over the place, but not in humans, you know? So, I mean, except maybe with baby Jesus, but (laughs) (laughs) the reality is that for the testing process, Oh my gosh, to understand what medicines, I mean, to understand if an SSRI is going to have an effect on the unborn embryo, if a mother takes it, to understand whether the metabolites, you know, after the body processes it that end up going into the baby's bloodstream, how they might affect an embryo's development, that is huge. But then secondarily, I mean, why not? Why not take it from blastocyst to embryo to fetus to little baby mouse? I'll tell you what. Why not? I'm old. I'm old <laughs> and intransigent. I think everything's impossible if I didn't do it myself. That's why. All right. No. So you want to hear the truth? There you go. Okay, old man you shaking it. your stick at the fence. You kids, get <laughs> off my lawn with your you blastocysts and stem cells. With your blastoids. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah, I, I admit it's not, it's not a strong limb. I'm an idiot to get out on it, but I just want to be controversial. Okay, Kiki, give me a break. Do it. All right. Talk about controversy. We're in the last story. You know, now we're in this era where we're we're like every month we're coming across these foundational studies that are investigating engraftment. Okay, we for a decade it was all about we can make this cell in the dish and it looks like the real thing, blah, 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 blah. And now we're at the next phase where like everybody's putting these cells into systems in a disease state. This is another case of that. And the bottom line here is that it's positive, I think. This is looking at neurons, so stem cell-derived neurons, syngeneic in this case, so IPS kind of correlates, that uh, survive long-term in pigs with spinal cord injuries. Okay, So obviously the major hurdle for spinal cord injuries, replacement of the damaged cord cells to reconnect, right? And a big problem with this has been persistent rejection of the cells that you get in there which necessitates the use of these you know, complex techniques to get the stuff in and to suppress the immune response. But uh, this new paper is from Martin Marsala, who's at UCSD. Actually, uh, an author on there is Allison Wotry, who was on the show a long while back. He was talking about the eating disorder, IPS cells, if you remember. Anyway, mm-hmm. he's a co-author on here. And at UCSD, this is in Science Translational Medicine, they took induced pluripotent stem cell-derived neuroprogenitor cells from pigs, and they, I, they engrafted them back into the auto, you know, autologous, and they had no immune suppression and showed that these grafts survived for a long time, up to 10 months, and caused no tumors. So it's a huge safety and efficacy hurdle that was met there. And they also showed, interestingly, I think that was really important, is that if you take cells that aren't from a genetic mass. So iPS cells that are not autologous and do like an allogeneic graft it is into a different genetic background, you can do a short transient burst of immunosuppression of only four weeks and you get the long-term survival up to 10 months. So that's a hmm. huge milestone, I think, that they've come now to like, there's the acute phase immunosuppression may be all you need in order to get a lasting contribution And that's everything because, you know, one of the terrible prospects for these people who are receiving any organ transplant for that matter is that they're going to have the immune rejection of that graft as soon as they go off the immunosuppressive drugs. This famously, it just happened with this guy who had to have a second face transplant. Can you imagine? So, I mean, this is a big deal in terms of delivery as well as, you know, clinical viability. We may be able to do one uh, off-the-shelf type product, which is hugely important because I think it's emerging the idea that we're going to do quality control on every single IPS line derived from every patient may be impractical for large-scale application. So an off-the-shelf product may work here with just transient immunosuppression in the case of spinal cord injury, at least. So a big deal. Kiki, we're living in the time right now when it's happening. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, are we living in the future? Yes, we are. Yes, yes we, we are. are. As long as I've been 
covering various aspects of science news, spinal cord injury has been a huge topic because of the difficulty in getting the cells to grow and getting injuries to heal. And if it can be done without as much in immunosuppression, it's just great for various life factors of the patients that are involved. Going to be people getting out of their chairs, Kiki, in our lifetime. Oh, so cool. I like it. Science. I mean, come on. Science is amazing. People are doing such amazing stuff. It's so inspiring. I hope you've had a great roundup, everybody. This was a lot of fun. A lot of good stories there. But it's time now for our interview. And before we get there, I just want to tell everybody, Stem Cell Technologies would like to invite Stem Cell Podcast listeners to visit their YouTube channel, where you will find dozens of useful videos demonstrating scientific protocols, workflows, and technical tips. Learn how to passage cells in 3D media, how to culture intestinal organoids, how to count spheroid cultures, how to automate blood cell isolation, and more. That is the Stem Cell Technologies YouTube channel. Go look for Stem Cell Technologies over on YouTube to see all those amazing videos. All right, so now on to our interview. Our guest today is Peter Lengel, co-founder and beer commander of Kings County Beer Collective in Brooklyn, New York. Pete managed big-name laboratories at Rockefeller University, UCSF, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals in his first professional life. But after spending a huge amount of his time brewing beer first as a hobbyist and then moonlighting as a volunteer at a couple of major craft breweries, Pete made the leap to brewing full-time. With the spirit of a scientist, instead of going it alone, Pete started his first professional brewing enterprise in Bushwick, Brooklyn, a couple years back as a collaboration with two other brewers, which they called the King County Brewers Collective. And they have taken the craft brew scene by storm with high praise in local and national critical circles. We're excited to hear his story. Pete, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So just to get started, I mean, this is a science show. Can you tell us a bit about, I'd love to know about your path to brewing from science. I mean, where did you start? Have you always been interested in beer? I think I've always been interested in beer, probably genetically. My father's like Czech and my mother's Irish, so the two biggest beer drinking uh, populations in the world. I'm from San Diego originally, where there was always lots of craft beer and good beer around, and I lived with some home brewers, actually, but I never actually engaged in it myself. So I moved to New York City and got a tiny little apartment and then decided, all right, let's do this now. I have no space. I just started home brewing in like 2008 and just it very quickly became an obsession. And at the time I was working at Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. It was a uh, like probably an hour and 45 minutes average commute each day. And I'd spend that time listening to brewing podcasts and just <laughs> literally obsessed with it. I couldn't wait to get home and make another beer and, and experiment and, and keep learning and, and making beer. So, Pete, yeah, you, you know, for a, like a amateur beer geek like myself, I'm like jumping on the bandwagon the last five years, maybe. But uh, you clearly have a deeper insight. Ten years ago, you really got into it. But what's like... Would you say now, looking back, the history of kind of this new craft beer wave, when did that start? When did it begin this slow displacement of like the Heineken, Anheuser-Busch type properties that are out there? It started with Prohibition, actually. And then what few breweries survived Prohibition were kind of quickly displaced by the big macros and it by the 60s, we got to a point where there's only really one beer being produced in the country, which is light American lager. And then at that point, this guy Fritz Maytag from Maytag Plants family, he bought Anchor Brewing in 1965 in San Francisco. And then he had been traveling over in, in Europe and the UK in particular and fell in love with their beers. And he bought Anchor, which was about to go under. And then he started producing these traditional styles. He brought ales back, pale ales, stout, porter. And so most people credit him with being the first kind of craft brewer of the wave, the godfather, if you will. But later on, in, I think it was 78, there was a, a sailor who had learned how to homebrew. He cobbled together a brew house and called it New Albion in uh, Northern California. And I think he made it from old dairy equipment that he welded together. And 
he was probably the first microbrewery to actually open on his own. And he was followed shortly thereafter by Sierra Nevada, actually. They opened and an anchor and Jack McAuliffe from New Albion, they helped Sierra launch and, and they really were the first to come on strong. I think by 89, they were producing their pale ale and they're one of the biggest now and still going strong. The history of how microbrewing came to be is really interesting, but I mean, there is a connection of science to beer that goes back even further. Can you talk about how science is incorporated into the culture of beer making? Yeah, I'd say they're actually kind of this, the same history. You go to Louis Pasteur, who was kind of credited, he's the father of microbiology. He was actually a fermentation scientist and he was trying to discover what was this magic of fermentation and, and Nobody knew. They didn't know there was a microorganism. They didn't know anything about microbiology. And I think most brewers and scientists thought it was a spontaneous chemical reaction. He was trying to discover how fermentation happened. And he discovered it was actually a living organism. And microbiology was born and all these advances in medicine and everything else came from beer, actually. So along those lines, like... The process, you know, this is something that has been exploited as far back as civilization is recorded, right? And for variant reasons, you know, I guess alcohol was low level of alcohol, like mead or whatever that was, was safer to drink than water. So you would people just be boozing all day. I mean, hey, to be alive in those days must have been a good time. How do you kind of reconcile the history of brewing with the modern day, I guess, to rephrase the question, have we improved on the process at all? Are we pretty much doing the same thing that people have been doing forever? That depends on who you ask. I was actually just down in uh, Argentina for this brewers conference, and I was giving a talk on cleaning and sanitation. And then after me, Peter Bucart, who is the brewmaster at New Belgium Brewing, and before that, Rodenbach in Belgium. And at Rodenbach, they made wild beers. They want to mix fermentation. I'm trying to make it to where there's only one organism in the brew, and that's the Saccharomyces yeast that you want. But he's fully embraced mixed fermentation. And in, in Belgium, they still have a culture and a beer style called Lambic, where they actually allow it to, they call it spontaneous fermentation. They allow it to be contaminated by whatever comes in on the night air and settles into the the unfermented beer. So they're still doing it these traditional ways. Most breweries are now doing probably single organism fermentation on Saccharomyces. And that actually began after Louis Pasteur. It was Carlsberg Brewery was the first to isolate a pure yeast strain. And they were actually plating it just like we do nowadays. And, so, and it was a lager strain. There's basically two kinds of Saccharomyces yeast that are used. There's ales and lagers. And the lager is actually a hybrid of the ale yeast and a wine yeast. And they ferment at different temperatures. And lager can ferment one sugar that ales can't. But the first one that was cultured was a lager. And this was about the time when there was new techniques for malting that were developed where you can make a really pale colored malt so you can make a pale colored beer. And there's a town in the Czech Republic called Pilsen and they hired this German brewmaster, Josef Rolls, who had just learned the new malting technique in England. And he took the pure culture of lager from Carlsberg, and he used their really soft water, and he made a beer called Pilsner. <laughs> they named it after the town. And that beer was revolutionary. It took over the world. It's kind of a tangent, I guess, but interesting story. But maybe this explains, when I was growing up, my dad was into home brewing, and he has a story. He says the best beer he ever made was when the cat fell into it. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that is, it, it wilded it, gave it multiple, the cat was carrying multiple strains of Saccharomyces or something, and he liked that flavor. It's really uh, making a big comeback in the States and elsewhere to kind of spontaneously ferment your beer, or at least pitch non-sac yeast or bacteria. We make uh, what are called kettle sours, uh, where we actually drop the pH of the wort. Wort is unfermented beer, by the way. We drop it with lactobacillus bacteria, and it goes through a little fermentation with lacto, and then we'll boil that and 
kill the lacto, and then we'll put it in the fermentation tank and pitch regular yeast to ferment it out. So we're making sour beers that way. We also have 40-something oak barrels that we got from local wineries and distilleries that we are pitching mixed cultures in of wild yeast, Britannomyces yeast, and blends of bacteria to make really funky, wild stuff. And that's really taken off across the, the country right now. So those are kind of old techniques that people are really bringing back. And then as far as like science and the quality of the beer, like if you wanted a clean fermentation, that never existed before Pasteur and Carlsberg and all that. There were always co-fermentations. And now you can do that. And now we can actually test and determine that our beer is clean with, with science. Like we have a PCR machine here that I'll do a DNA prep, and then I'll run 45 rounds of PCR, so it's very sensitive. Then I'll bind that to a chip and, and pop a signal if we got a, back, a beer spoiler in there. So we can actually test and see that we have just the sackies that we wanted and nothing else. So, yeah, I want to come back to the tech that you use, but just staying on that note for a second, you know, you alluded to the fact that you like a clean fermentation and, you know, historically it's all been wild. But I feel like in, in the modern era, the real commodity, whatever it is, is always about like consistency. And I would feel like that's fundamentally in opposition to anything that's wild. It's batch to batch. So is that implicit in any of these co-ferments? It's like, hey, the co-ferment this time was great. But, you know, it's like wine. It's more like wine in that way where it's highly variable, but depending on which vintage, so to speak. Yeah, it definitely can be especially if you're trying to buy a mixed culture and the populations will kind of diverge the ratios of the bugs over time. So you can't really reculture them and get the same exact beer, but you could buy them from the lab where they're growing them individually and then they'll put them together at the right ratio for the beer you're trying to make. The lambic beers are actually really consistent because the bacteria and yeast that are fermenting these are actually living in the brewery. And so it's almost like an organism where they make these beers. They're, the walls are covered, the walls and the wood and all the surfaces of the brewery are covered in these organisms. And they just wait nightly for the work to come out and then they recontaminate them. Would you say it's an apt metaphor? It's like a sourdough kind of, like the starter that you have. It's like the mother it has been going for as long as that brewery has been alive. And they essentially are locked into that space, huh? They're maintaining it. And if you go to these breweries, they're quite old and they do very minimal cleaning because they really don't want to lose this culture that they have. And the mother is the brewery in these places. And when they originally opened, they opened in Brussels and Beersel in what was originally orchards because sugar fermenting organisms, are, they could come on fruit. That's their carbohydrate source. So they opened these intentionally in orchards. They put the unfermented beer, the worked, into what's called a cool ship, which is a shallow copper trough. At night, they let it cool. And when it got to the right temperature that it wouldn't kill off these organisms, they would come in from the windows. They'd open the eaves and let the dust and the night air come in. <laughs> I love it. It's an ecosystem, organism. It's kind of gross. If I'm yeah. honest, I don't think I want to drink that beer. <laughs> They're actually delicious. They're wonderful. And they take three years. It's a, a cascade of different organisms doing their part, one of which is actually early on enteric bacteria, which is kind of gross, but they're all fermenting certain sugars or converting starches and fermenting those, and they're dropping the pH, and they're changing the environment, and they're actually making it to where they can no longer survive, but the next organism takes it. It's like passing the baton. This occurs over three years before the lambic is actually ready to drink, and they're pretty consistent because they're maintaining that in their brewery. The orchards are long gone. They're, Brussels is the big city now, but they still got it. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Oh, you mentioned a few minutes ago, like all the techniques that you've got going on to be able to identify different microorganisms that might be spoiling the beer. But there's also, there's training that you have in particular from your background as a stem cell scientist. So I'd love to know what kind of skills you picked up from your lab environment background that have been transferred to what you're doing now? I pay a lot of attention to sanitation, which is key. When you're doing cell culture, you know, if you contaminate your culture, there's thousands of dollars down the drain and how much time and effort and research down the drain. So we're always very particular in our sanitary technique. 
and that definitely translates in the brewery. Like to tell people when I give these talks on cleaning and sanitation, used to work in stem cell work. We were in laminar flow hoods. Everything had UV sterilization at night. They are triple antibiotic plates. Everything's very clean. And we'd still get contaminations in the dishes. And what I realized was it's the scientist that's introducing this contamination. And one of the biggest ones is probably the latex gloves. You see people come, they grab a glove, sterile environment, grab a glove with their bare hands, they're touching the fingers, and they go into the hood. Now your glove's contaminating everything because we're covered in microorganisms, as we know. And you may have washed your hands, but maybe you didn't wash them well enough. Maybe your technique is substandard. You're bringing in a bottle of media or something from the outside that you touched with your hands or was not. It's like always having sanitation at the forefront of your mind. I definitely bring over. And we're dealing with microorganisms, so yeast culture, yeast management. There's a lot of scientific papers out there on yeast, and um, I can actually read them and make sense of them, whereas some brewers get a little bit lost. That helps. Concepts of pH, which actually was developed by a brewer at Carlsberg as well. Soren Sorensen built a concept of pH, which is very important in brewing. Lots of the processes, the conversion of starch into sugars are pH dependent, and we have to measure that at all points. Thermometer as well was invented by a brewer in England, because everything's temperature dependent on that. We have a UV spectrophotometer, so we used to use those all the time in the lab, and, and now we're using it here to test the bittering units in our beer, and we can run color, we can check for what's called decinyl diketones, diacetyl, which is a an off flavor in beer produced by the yeast during fermentation and lots of other things. So we've got an autoclave, which anyone could run, but I definitely have embraced the importance of having an autoclave around here, especially with some of these bugs that we're putting in the barrels. There's a lot of science in beer. The way you tell it, a lot of, we owe a lot of science to boost. And I believe that. If not for anything else, to keep me in the game, I needed a few beers in my postdoc late at night. Would you say that beer is becoming more like sciency? I mean, I don't know about you, but when I go into these craft beer stores, you know, now that they'll have, there's always like a little forum with some Plato looking dude, pretty much like overweight wearing what looks like a toga. And he's like holding court about like talking all about like science that you got to do this with the double dry hop, blah, 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 blah. And I wonder, is that like the beer geek speak, like this guy's a big shot and he's got all these little, you know, minions and he's sounding important? Or is there a lot more science to beer and is like beer becoming more like specialized and sciencey? Are we making new kinds of beer and stuff like is there innovation in beer now because of science? It's definitely both. There's. Certainly a lot of geekery involved where people are trying to impress their fellow beer nerds with their talk of IBUs and different hot varietals and whatnot. But probably every decent brewery and all the big ones have serious laboratories because they're looking for a consistent product and they're making sure it's not got a beer spoiler in it, which is also a big issue. We're canning beer and like I said earlier, I don't know if it was recording at the time, but beer doesn't ferment fully with, with Saccharomyces yeast. There's some complex sugars called dextrins that are these branch sugars that sac yeast do not ferment, but these beer spoilers can. So if you put a contaminated beer in a bottle or a can and it's it's got a contaminant in there, it's going to ferment these sugars and it's going to produce CO2 and it can explode. Bottle bombs and can grenades, we call them. And that's a huge issue. And there have been a lot of recalls on the market from breweries that found that they had a contaminated canning run. But they can test that with their lab. A lot of the big ones have probably a full team of scientists that work in their breweries around the clock testing everything and monitoring just the analytics, but also looking for biological contamination and whatnot and yeast health. And most breweries are probably using more than one strain of yeast and keeping those separate is a big thing. And cross-contamination with different sac yeast is another issue. So it sounds like quality control, consistency is a science element, but the craft is still the craft. Would you agree with that? It's an art and a science, yeah, for sure. But I think you can have a more informed craft if you've got the science backing it up. 
Do you think that the science foundation and that ability to kind of scale up to larger production is based on, you know, having laboratory for quality control? I mean, are microbreweries kind of stuck at a small stage of production until they can hire on a team to be that the science team for the brewery? I think they can scale before the science, but it's not very wise to do. Like the bigger you get, people are definitely expecting quality if you're a larger brewery and if, and your reputation is everything. And once you put out a bad beer or two, people are going to just go somewhere else. There's over 7,000 breweries in the country now, more than there's ever been. And competition is fierce. So I think it's a natural part of the growth. It's organic. As you get bigger and you're putting out more and more product and you're shipping it further afield and if it's going through distributors that aren't necessarily keeping it cold, you're going to have a lot more risk and issue of these contaminations uh, causing you big trouble down the road. So as breweries grow, they definitely start investing in laboratory personnel and equipment. While we're talking about the scale, you know, it's as a consumer, one of the first, I mean, we're not trademark protecting or anything. I'll tell you, I started drinking like Brooklyn they had an IPA, the India IPA that they had was the first one. I was like, oh, my God, this beer, it's great. And that's what like started me on beer. And then a lot of beers later, I went to Lagunitas Little Something, you know, Little Something. I was yeah. like, wow, this is like a really unique one. So good, right? Now my wife hates it, but I'm like, I can't buy a beer that's like cost less than $7 a can because I'm such a connoisseur and my like beer habit has gotten so expensive. But the reason why I've made that progression is because what I've recognized is that the farther afield I see the beer, the more widely available it is, the larger the scale of production is, the less I'm going to like it. That they kind of like grow into obsolescence in terms of my consumer taste. Do you think that that is a thing that you get too big to be truly craft or micro? Or how do you like maintain your level of quality and craftsmanship while scaling? It's definitely a thing that these bigger breweries, a lot of them are developing brands. And smaller breweries like ours, most every beer we produce is a one-off. These larger ones kind of get stuck producing these four brands. and They have to be the same. Maybe very slowly they're tweaking them over the years, but people come to expect that beer. And it's not as exciting maybe as the smaller breweries are putting out this one-off IPA, collaboration IPAs and whatnot. When you're that big, there's probably a lot more to lose if you're going to be a little risky in producing a, a new beer. Now they're, they're probably being a little more careful. What we call it is relevance. It's also like music. Like when your hometown band gets too popular, it's, it's kind of not as cool anymore to listen to them. Like when I was a kid, I remember like Green Day was really cool and then they got too cool to have Green Day t-shirt on anymore. <laughs> That's right, they're too big. They sold out. <laughs> on the know with the new up-and-coming cool kids breweries but some breweries have managed to maintain their relevance like sierra nevada like they're one of the biggest and they're still making great beers and people still love them uh, and they're making lots of different varieties of beers all the time they have their core brands but they're doing a lot of new stuff they're relevant still for sure so this brings it to the point like i think sierra nevada is still independent and they want to maintain that but there are a lot of microbreweries now being bought up by Anheuser-Busch and the larger beer companies, these, you know, big beer distributors across the country. What is the beer business environment like right now? Are, is it like startups where it's like, I'm going to get bought by the big guys and sell out and make my money? Or are you guys like, I just want to do what I'm doing and hope that the big guys don't come trying to buy me? What's going on? It's definitely a mixed bag. I've met some brewers who are actually admitted i'm starting this so i can sell it and make some money i think most are just too busy trying to make as much beer as they possibly can right now and don't really think about it too much the ones that are making good beer are extremely busy and they of course it comes into everyone's mind and we thought about it too but i think people got into this because it's something they're passionate about not because of the money because you don't make a lot of money being a brewer and i think most probably want to just continue to make their product their craft and when a brewery is bought by the big guys, people get very upset. It's, again, like band or even like your local sports team. And when it's no longer your local team or you're no longer supporting the little guy, which is what craft beer is kind of all about. We're taking on the big guys and we're all... Mostly it seems like we're people that are kind of 
in a second career in the middle of their life and making a transition into something new that they, was their hobby and going out on their own and trying to make it. And it's a struggle. And I think people really get that, are supportive of it. And then once like AB InBev comes and buys you, that's gone. And there's been a lot of backlash. I've known some brewers that have worked at some of these and they're like, yeah, people are pouring our beer out in the street. They're making all these angry posts on Instagram and social media and they won't come anymore. And people get upset. And like you were saying earlier about the bigger breweries and maybe not making as exciting a variety of beers they used to, that's definitely happened as well. Like they've consolidated the brands. Lagunitas is an example. And and I think I've talked to some breweries that work, some brewers that have worked at these places and they said, yeah, they are actually telling us to use this different ingredient, and, you know, cheaper ingredients and they're, they're cutting corners and whatnot. So it's an odd situation to find yourself in where your competitor, your Goliath is like, kind of buying out all your friends and then making the product on a bigger scale and underselling you to take you out. Mm-hmm. And they, also, they, they have huge distribution chains as well. So like, And they realized one day they woke up and they went, oh, craft beer, that is a competitor. And we need to get into that because all of a sudden they're like, whoa. Oh, yeah. Did you guys see? Pete, you must be following this that Anheuser-Busch just posted like major loss, right? That they're taking the hit from the surge in craft beer. Craft sector has been growing consistently. It's starting to slow down now, finally. And now we're losing a lot of the bigger craft breweries because now they're not craft anymore. They're not independently owned. So that's affecting too. But the macros have been actually at a loss. They're like losing 1%, but 1% of what they got is significant. That's a lot of money. And I mean, I know you say you don't make a lot of money as a brewer, but I can say firsthand that the half-life of your beer in stores is like one, two days. I mean, it it flies off the shelves. So just along those lines, I don't want you to tell me your numbers or anything. I'm sure you got some secrets to keep there, but can you give us an idea what kind of like volume, how much beer can you guys make in a week, let's say? We have what's called a 15-barrel brew house. Beer is measured in this archaic measurement of barrels which is 31 u.s gallons we're actually double batch everything out of the brew house so we fill 30 barrel fermenters so we're making about a little less than a thousand gallons at each brew and we're brewing twice a week so we're making about two thousand gallons of beer a week which is actually pretty small i'd do it for me (laughs) at the end of all of our interviews we like to ask our guests what we call the last question segment is intended to stimulate conversation about real life as a scientist or provide advice, encouragement, reassurance to the young scientists out there. And since now this is your hobby that's become your career, we're not going to ask you the question, if you hadn't chosen science as a career, what would you have done? Because you're doing it now. From your transition, I think it would be interesting to know from you if there's anything that you either have advice for scientists who, you know, young scientists who are in grad school and looking at the environment of, oh gosh, what am I going to do? Am I going to get a professorship? Am I going to make beer? What am I going to do? Do you have any advice for people at that stage of their career? In life in general, you have to follow your passion. That's your compass. Whatever, you might be very interested in science and maybe you're not in the exact right field. And maybe you need to visit some other labs and talk to some other people and maybe just find what your actual interest is, what got you into it, how you got there, and then follow that to where you need to be. Like, I got into science because I was interested in marine biology, but all my professors said, you can't work in that. There's no jobs in the field. So, And then I got a friend who got me a job at a, a biotech, and then I just kind of went down that road for 13 years until my homebrewing hobby took over my life and became a career. Find you need to, the hardest question in life is what do you want to do when you grow up? And I think it's like I've heard it quoted as follow your bliss. Just you got to find out where your passion is and you need some experience to, to realize for perspective. Like, do I like embryology or stem cell research or whatever? You know, I'd say go to as many labs as you can and talks as you can and, and find out where your interest lies and then follow it. If it takes a turn, it takes a turn, and you'll get there eventually. And I mean, if your case is any less than there, you can find science in life. It wasn't in a lab that you find your career, but it's definitely science, and it's definitely, I think, has turned out to be your bliss. So congratulations. I'm envious 
you get to drink a lot of beer and you found your bliss. This is like one, two shots. So congratulations, buddy. Thank you. And thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. It was really great getting to speak with you today. For having me. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, everyone out there, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Stem Cell Podcast. Be sure to send us your thoughts and questions on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com and be sure to tune in for our next episode. All right, Dalen, that concludes episode 117 of the Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you for another great show.